Amen, amen. Because he's alive, we are free. Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? We're going to spend some time in the scripture together this morning. And really, really glad you are here. If you're a guest with us, Thanks for joining us this morning. We have a welcome center outside in the patio that we would love to answer any questions you have about our church and get a chance to meet you. This is a, a special weekend for us because it's the year anniversary of opening our resource center. And so thank you for those of you who have given to that and been a part of that. We have 800 families a week that come in and will purchase clothes at a very discounted price and we're able to serve them that way. 800 families a week. Over 80 families a week we feed through our food pantry there now, and all of that's happening every single week at Mariners. We have 100 volunteers, 100 of you make it happen. So thank you. Thank you so much for what you do. It's really, it's amazing to be a part of. Jonah, who leads that work, and he does an incredible job, Jonah told me recently that we've seen a major surge in people giving clothes to the Resource Center, and um, he thinks there's really one factor that's caused the, the clothes, um, it's actually one person has been the X factor in causing clothes to uh, rise, and we actually have a picture of her, I want to say thank you especially to um, Marie. So... <laughs> It's caused us to, at uh, my house, my kids have all their clothes and we've given more clothes now. So seriously, thank you for your, um, your contributions. And we're just sparking joy. That's all we're doing. We're just sparking joy. We are in uh, week three of a series called Love Stories. And I have never been a guy who's been big into um, to love stories. Jared, the first week, tried to talk about romantic movies. And I'm like, ah, uh, just, I mean, I, I was thinking, hoping my wife wasn't going to nudge me and you know, remind me of the painful experience we had with our fo- first romantic movie. I took her to one, and that was early in our marriage. We've been married 22 years, and so we have not seen another one since then. And I've even offered. I've said, baby, I'll, I'll go with you. We can rent one. I can we'll watch one on Netflix. And she's like, I'm not watching any more romantic shows with you ever. I'll watch them by myself or with friends. And the reason is because the first one I took her to, and the only one, right after we got married— Titanic. I took her to Titanic, and I just the whole way home cracked on the ending. I thought the ending wasn't really much of a love story at all, and, and here's why. You've, you've got um, Rose and Jack are in the ocean. The Titanic has sunk, and they're in the ocean, and there's this door that goes by them. And in my mind, as I'm watching the movie, it's a, it's a pretty wide door. So Jack's the gentleman, and he helps Rose get on the door, and then she says, try, and he tries to get on, but he falls off, and and I'm like, he's going to try multiple times. I mean, it takes me multiple times to get on a raft in the swimming pool. Surely she's going to scoot over and try for him to get on the door, but she just lounges out on the door, (laughs) and he's in the water dying. And so I'm telling my wife, I'm like, baby, that, what kind of love story is that? And she didn't even try. She didn't even try to scoot over a second and a third and a fourth time. This isn't that loving. And then he's in the water and um, she's holding, he has his hands up and she's holding his hands and she's saying, I'll never let go. I'll never let go. And he dies and a boat comes by and she jams him down in the water and leaves. So, I'm like, baby, if that's a romantic movie, I just, I just, I'm just not feeling it. So uh, we haven't seen one together since. <laughs> but speaking of romantic shows, um, Breaking Bad is one of the most popular <laughs> shows in recent history. Very different love story, but it's going to set up this, this sermon really well. In Breaking Bad, Walter White is a chemistry teacher <clears throat> at a high school, and he finds out that he has cancer. And because he has cancer, 
he decides that he feels this weight of responsibility to take care of his son and his wife. And as a chemistry teacher at a high school, he doesn't have much money, but he figures he can sell meth because he can, he's a chemistry teacher. He can put meth together and sell meth. And so he begins the very first episode of the very first season. It's Walter White attempting to sell meth and make meth and sell it. And you get the sense as you watch, if you watch the first episode, uh, that he's doing this not for himself, but he's doing this for his family. He's doing this for them. But the longer you watch, if you've watched it, you start to see that he's not really, nor has he ever been doing this for anyone else but himself. He moves really quickly from this reluctant meth dealer to a hardened criminal, because that's what happens when you focus on yourself. And in the series of seasons, he becomes more and more hardened to everyone around him. And you start to see real quickly that this has never been about serving anyone else. This has always been about him. And he finally admits it in the last conversation with his estranged wife, and his estranged son, because everything in his life has self-destructed as he's focused on himself. And he finally admits the real motivation for everything he did. Take a look. Skylar. All the things that I did you need to understand. I have to hear one more time that you did this for the family. I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. Everything I did, I did it for me. I was good at it. And I was alive. And his self-focus destroyed everything in his life. Which is why the scripture gives us a picture of love that is opposite of that. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. The apostle Paul writes, If I speak human or angelic tongues... But do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then now, Paul's going to give us characteristics of love love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking. And we're going to look at this one phrase together this morning, that love is not self-seeking. If you notice 
inside your bulletin, there are some notes there. You will see a chart that I put together for you that shows that this one phrase, love is not self-seeking, is actually the linchpin for all the other adjectives in 1 Corinthians 13. Bible scholars and theologians have said this, that this one phrase, love is not self-seeking, is the foundation for all the other characteristics. So someone who is not self-seeking is going to be patient because they don't think the world revolves around them. So if you're not self-seeking, you're simultaneously patient. Someone who is not self-seeking is kind because the person doesn't want all of the affirmations for himself or herself, but wants to be kind to others. Someone who is not self-seeking does not envy because someone who is selfish thinks that you don't deserve that, I deserve that. She doesn't deserve that, I deserve that. But if you're not self-seeking, you're also not envious. Someone who is not self-seeking is not boastful, is not constantly story-topping and showing how awesome they are. They don't need to own the room and dominate the room because they want other people to be received and respected as well. Someone who is not self-seeking is not arrogant. Someone who is not self-seeking is not rude. They don't want to demean other people and harass other people because they want to care for other people, that this one phrase, love is not self-seeking, is the foundation for all the other phrases. But is there a more countercultural phrase than this? Love is not self-seeking. We hear the opposite in our culture. Take care of yourself first. Watch out for yourself. You better care for yourself because nobody else will. Seek your own good. Seek yourself. Promote yourself. Live for yourself. It's all about you. It's about you and yourself. And yet this scripture says that love is not self-seeking, self-promoting, self-taking advantage. Researchers in recent years have started to uncover what happens when we live in a culture that constantly promotes us to be self-focused and self-centered. John um, Capio at University of Chicago did a 10-year research study on this. And he interviewed people and and placed them on this chart called the chronic self-focus chart. I don't want to be on that chart. The chronic self-focus chart. And here's what he concluded after 10 years of research, professor at the University of Chicago. So this is not a Christian author. This is not a Christian book. This is public university or private university research and concluded this, that if you focus on yourself, you will actually become more lonely. And the more lonely you are, then the more you focus on yourself. And then you focus more on yourself, you become more lonely. He says that you become trapped in this downward spiral of self-focus and loneliness, that that's what happens if you focus on you. Another researcher, Adam Golunsky at Columbia University in New York, he did research on the relationship between self-focus or self-centeredness and insecurity. And he found, and this is going to make sense to you, that the more you focus on yourself, the more you think about yourself, the more insecure you are. Because you're constantly wondering, how do I measure up? How do I measure up to somebody else? How do I measure up to their standards? How do I measure up to my own standards? That the more you think about yourself, you actually struggle more with insecurity and anxiousness. Which is why 
God is caring for us when he reminds us that love is not self-seeking, that you don't help yourself when you seek yourself. You actually hurt yourself when you seek yourself. Love is not self-seeking. So we're going to look at a relationship in the Old Testament today, the relationship between Samson and Delilah, because it is this picture of what happens in a relationship when both people seek themselves, when both people are self-centered. It's a very popular story. It's, there's been movies about the story. There's been books written about the story. Leonard Cohen's famous song, Hallelujah, which has been covered by bands more than any other song. He actually wrote it. Pentatonics did not write Hallelujah. <laughs> Leonard Cohen wrote it. And there's actually a lyric in the song about Samson and Delilah. And here it is. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. So Leonard Cohen gets much of the story right, that Samson is tied down by Delilah, and Delilah cuts Samson's hair, and we're going to get to that in a moment. And then he says, and from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. As if Delilah stole the hallelujah from Samson's lips. As if Delilah stole the praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. As if the relationship between Samson and Delilah took the praise the Lord from Samson's lips. But here's what we're going to say. The praise the Lord had left Samson's lips long before Samson and Delilah were a couple. In fact, the praise the Lord had left his lips long before, and actually that's what caused him to get into the relationship in the first place. And so the story of Samson and Delilah, it actually opens with Samson's. If you have your Bible, you want to go to Judges chapter 13, 14, and 15. It's where the passage is. And in Judges 13 is when the announcement of Samson's birth is. His parents were old in age. They weren't expecting a child. And God tells them through an angel, you're going to have a kid named Samson. And this was the announcement, verse 5 of Judges chapter 13. Samson will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. So if you're a Jewish person, you read Judges chapter 13, you're like, boom, this is good because the Philistines and the Jews are getting together and the Jewish people are going to lose their identity. And so God's raising somebody up named Samson and he's going to save us from the power of the Philistines. This is going to be good news. And he is going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, what does that mean to be a Nazarite? In the Old Testament, If you wanted to make a vow to the Lord, you could make this Nazarite vow, which most people did just for a short, brief period of time, but there were three things you would do if you made this Nazarite vow. The first is you would never touch a dead body, whether a person or an animal, because by touching a dead body, you would be unclean. The second thing is you would never have strong drink, no Bacardi, beer, or or bourbon, nothing, nothing from the vine, uh, nothing at all strong. And the third thing is you would never cut your hair. You could not cut your hair during the period that you were under this Nazarite vow. But the angel told Samson's parents that he's going to be a Nazarite from birth for his whole life. But here's what we find as you flip the page. The next chapter, you start to see that Samson 
is not going to live under his Nazarite vow. He's going to live all for himself. Everything he does is going to be for him because he does what he wants, when he wants. I like it. I'm alive. I do all of this for me. It first happens when he sees a woman that he wants to marry. And his parents are like, Samson, can you please marry a woman from among God's people and not marry a Philistine? And here's what Samson says to his parents in Judges 14.3. Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Whatever I want, I get. I do it all for me. I'm not listening to you, mom and dad. Get her for me. She's who I want. And so this is going to be the first woman that Samson has a relationship with. The first of three in the book of Judges. After he pursues this woman, he then goes on this journey and a lion attacks Samson. And the strength of God comes on Samson. The spirit of God comes on Samson and he attacks the lion and kills the lion, which only helps his reputation as this mighty, strong man. He kills the lion with his bare hands. He leaves the scene, he comes back, and there is a beehive in the carcass of the lion. And what does Samson do? He walks up and he reaches into the dead animal, picks out honey from the beehive and eats it and actually takes some to his parents. But what did he do when he did that? He touched the dead animal. He broke the first part of his Nazarite vow. And you're thinking as you read the story, Samson, it's just some honey. You're going to break your Nazarite vow for some honey inside of a dead animal? Samson would say, I do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and when I want to do it, everything I do, I do it for me. He then goes to the wedding feast of this girl that he's asked to marry him. And the scripture says that they throw this huge party as the Philistines were accustomed to doing. Well, that meant this huge, massive keg party with funnels and everything, which means that Samson broke the second part of his vow. And at the wedding feast, Samson, because he's self-seeking, is boastful and rude, and he's making a scene. He's the epitome of wedding drama, Samson is. He sees 30 of the Philistines, and he says, hey, guys, I have a riddle for you. If you guess it, you can, I'll get all 30 of you clothes. All 30 of you get brand new clothes. If you don't guess it, you owe me some new clothes. And so he makes this riddle up, and it's about the lion and the honey. And the 30 Philistines, they're like, man, we got to figure this out. And so they go to Samson's wife and they say, hey, can you tell us? Go to him. Go to him. Um, Tell him you won't love him unless he gives you the answer. Go find out for us. And so she goes to Samson and she begs him and begs him over and over again. And he can't stand the idea that she's going to remove her love from him. So he gives in and gives her the answer. She takes the answer back to the 30. They come to Samson and say, boom, we solved the riddle. And Samson is so humiliated because when you're self-seeking, you can't handle any dent to your reputation at all. And so he's so mad, he goes and kills 30 Philistines to take their clothes from them to give to those 30. That's what he does. So clearly that marriage didn't work out. If you're going to kill 30 people on the night of your wedding ceremony, it's probably not going to work. And so that's the first relationship that Samson has. The second the scripture says is Samson pursues a prostitute, which makes sense because everything Samson does is for him. He will use people for his own sake and his own pleasure. And then now we get to the story of Samson and Delilah. And you're going to see that not only did Samson have 
a struggle with self-centeredness, but so did Delilah. And if you're dating someone, you need to understand, or if you're looking at dating, that you not only date a person, but you also date all of their struggles and sins when you date them. And when you marry someone, you not only marry a person, but that person brings all of their struggles into the relationship. I bring all of my struggles into my relationship. And so Samson and Delilah brought all of their selfishness into the relationship and the relationship destroyed them and they destroyed the relationship. Judges 16, verse four and five. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorg Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. This is a big offer to Delilah. Samson is a enemy, a national enemy. The Philistines can't stand Samson because he keeps killing a bunch of them and humiliating them. And they want Samson captured. So they go to Delilah, the leaders do, and they offer her 1,100 pieces of silver each person. So a whole lot of money and a whole lot of power is offered to Delilah because if she hands over Samson, she'll be this national hero because she'll be the one who captured him and took down Samson. So they're in this relationship. Samson's in it for the wrong reasons. She's in it for the wrong reasons. She goes to Samson and says, Samson, Will you tell me where your great strength comes from? Samson lies to her the first time and says, "Um, if you tie me up with seven bowstrings, I'll be just like any regular person. I'll be like a weak man if you just tie me up. I'll just be weak. I'll I'll be a regular guy. So she ties him up. And then she yells, while he's sleeping, she ties him up. And then she yells, Samson, the Philistines are here, which was a code word for the Philistines on the other side of the door to barge in and capture Samson. Samson breaks through the ropes. A second time, Delilah goes to Samson and says, please tell me where your strength comes from. Now, when you're reading this and you see that Samson is still with her the second and third time, you're like, bro. Do you not see what's happening here? I mean, are you that stupid? And here's the reality. Self-centeredness makes us senseless. Self-centeredness makes us stupid. You've seen the same thing. This is not that far-fetched. You have been at a dinner with some friends when you've confronted a girlfriend or you've confronted one of your guy friends and basically said, here's what everyone else sees in the relationship that you're not seeing. Because when we're focused on ourselves, there's often a whole lot of things that we don't see. So the fourth time that Delilah goes to Samson, she has nagged him and nagged him. And he finally says, okay, if you cut my hair, I will be as weak as any other man. And why does he tell her? Well, he likely doesn't believe it's true. He's already broken the first part of his Nazarite vow to not touch something dead. He's broken the second part of his Nazarite vow to have strong drink. And so does it matter that much? I'm Samson. Look at my reputation. Look at everything I've done. My vow doesn't matter that much to me anyway. So if you cut my hair, I think that's maybe it. I won't have strength. And so while he's sleeping, she ties him down. She cuts his hair. She yells, Samson, the Philistines are here. 
and he can't break free. And the Philistines rush in. They capture Samson. It gets very, very grotesque. They take out his eyes and they bring him to a temple where they humiliate him and make a public spectacle of Samson. The great warrior is now humiliated for everybody to see. And we'll come back to the ending in a moment. But there's two thoughts real quickly that I want you to see as it relates to you and your relationships. Number one, self-absorption results in self-destruction. And this means in relationships too. Self-absorption results in self-destruction. If you are focused on yourself, you will destruct your relationships. Dana Adam Shapiro, he, he wrote this book. It's a very flattering title. You can be right or you can be married. <laughs> Essentially saying you can't be both. And he's, he's not married. He is a single guy in New York City, and most of his friends, or a lot of his friends in their late 20s, when he was in his late 20s, got married. And then he noticed 10 years later, 12 years later, in his late 30s, early 40s, that a bunch of his friends who got married were no longer married. And he was like, what's going on? I was at the wedding ceremony. Everybody was happy. Everybody wanted the relationship to happen. What is causing these relationships to deteriorate? What is causing these relationships to destruct? And so the book is essentially a series of interviews with people asking, why did the marriage not work out? And a reoccurring theme is selfishness. Here's two examples. A husband said this, look, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I was flat out the world's worst husband. I was inconsiderate. I was selfish. I was utterly self-absorbed. A woman confessed. Speaking about an affair that she began with a guy at the gym, she said, I was weak, self-indulgent, disrespectful and impulsive. We wound up having a major affair and that was the beginning of the end of my marriage. Self-absorption always results in self-destruction. One of the greatest basketball players to ever play, Kobe Bryant, was a genius, not only at the game, but at the game within the game. Several months ago, on the online magazine SB Nation, Kobe Bryant had an interview posted in which he admitted one of the crafty things they did to get opposing teams to self-destruct. Kobe said that if they were playing a team where there were two all-stars on the opposing team and one of the all-stars already had secured his max contract, meaning he was set five years, X mil, But the next guy, the other all-star, was playing this season for a box score so he would ensure to get a major max contract the next year that Kobe would have his teammates focus all of their defensive energy on the person who was playing for a max contract. Because if they put their attention on the person who was playing for a max contract, this is savage and brilliant, that person would start to complain against the other all-star, and Kobe said we would watch them self-destruct. Self-absorption always results in self-destruction. And I know this, sadly I know this to be true because in my own life, when I got married, 
got married young and I was so selfish. I was a youth pastor right after we got married and I didn't take me, we were married like six months when this happened. And it didn't take long for me to realize that I could get a lot of affirmation and pats on the back by being as many places as possible in front of as many students' lives as possible at, at games. I was chaplain for, for high school football teams. I was bringing lunch to school. I was everywhere the kids were all the time. I was showing tons of love and tons of affection to teenagers. And every passing week, my wife was at home feeling less and less affection. I was, I was Walter White. I didn't sell meth, but everything I did, I did it for me. It was worse. It was worse than Walter White because Walter White had to do his in secret. I could do mine and look like I was serving the Lord when in reality, I was doing everything for me. I was good at it and I liked it and it almost destroyed my marriage. One night I was at a, students baseball game. This was the turning point. This was the moment when I realized my foolishness and my selfishness. There was a mom two seats behind me at this high school baseball game. I was there watching kids play and hanging out with kids and my wife's at home where she's been every night that week when I've been out doing stuff, serving the Lord, but ultimately about winning and succeeding and doing a great job. It's about my work ethic and proving that I could do this. And this mom behind me says, when are you going to bring lunch to our kid's school? Because that day I had brought lunch to another school. When are you going to bring lunch to my kid's school? And I was at the game of her son. And it stung when she said it. And I realized I, I will never be able to do enough. It will never be enough. If I live for me, if I seek myself and I seek affirmation and I seek success for me, it will never be enough. For Walter White, it was never enough. There's a scene in Breaking Bad where there is a warehouse stuffed with money and it was never enough. And if you live for yourself, it will never be enough. Your portfolio will never be enough. Your acquisitions will never be enough. Your follower count will never be enough. If it's about you, it will never be enough. And in the meantime, as you seek yourself, you'll destroy the relationships that are most important to you. I had a wife at home who felt less and less loved while everything I was offering was never going to be enough. I left after the fourth inning of the game. I left early and got in the truck, my truck, and drove home and just wept realizing how idiotic and stupid and selfish I'd been. And I haven't been perfect since. I still wrestle as we all do with our selfishness. And every time I lean towards selfishness, it never satisfies. There's really two ways to hear this message. One is to think about somebody else's selfishness. The other is to think about yours. And so what do we do with our selfishness? Because we all struggle with it. Every one of us do. And this brings us to point two, and I'll close. Christ-centeredness is the only way to overcome 
self-centeredness. The way that you overcome being self-centered isn't to get in your car on the way home and to humiliate yourself for your selfishness. It's not to write on the mirror in your bathroom, I will not be self-centered, I will not be self-centered, I will not be self-centered. Why does that not work? Because you're still focusing on yourself. The way to overcome self-centeredness isn't to think about yourself. The way to overcome self-centeredness is to look to Jesus, the only one who can free us from being focused on ourselves and the only one who came here to forgive us for being focused on ourselves. The story of Samson ends this way. Samson is led away and he's in this temple And he can't see because his eyes have been gouged out, but he's been spat on, cursed, mocked, humiliated, publicly made a spectacle of. And he asked the person who is watching over him if they can lead him to the pillar that holds up, to one of the pillars that holds up the temple. And Samson's leaning against the pillar, and this is the best moment of his life. From an outside perspective, you might have looked at that moment and said, that's the worst moment of Samson's life. It's the best moment of Samson's life. Because in that moment, he realizes that everything he's had in his life has been from God and it hasn't been from him because he says, God, if you could give me strength one last time, he's confessing all those other times I had strength, it wasn't me, it was always you. If you could give me strength one last time, And God answers his prayer, and Samson leans against the pillar, and the temple falls down, and the enemies of God's people, the Philistines, are killed. And remember what the promise when Samson was born said, that he will begin to save God's people from the Philistines. And when you read the story of Samson, you're like, how is this going to happen? Well, here's what you need to know. God always fulfills his plans, even if it doesn't look like it's going to make sense. God always comes through. But there's somebody else who was led away by captors. There's somebody else who was publicly humiliated, who was made a spectacle of, who was spat on, who was beaten, and who was ultimately placed on a cross on a hill called Calvary to save God's people from their selfishness. Jesus the Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords, came here and delivered us from our enemy of sin and shame and guilt and death. And unlike Samson, who died for his selfishness, Christ died for my selfishness. But just like Samson, when you would look at the moment and think, this is utter misery as Samson is being humiliated, God brought something great out of it. When you would watch from an observer standpoint, Jesus on the cross, you would think, man, this doesn't make any sense. A good man is dying. But it wasn't just a good man that was dying. It was God who became a man, who put himself on the cross. And while it looked to be a painful and worthless death, it was a death which was given for us to bring us to God and rescue us from our selfishness. Jesus is the greater Samson who defeats our enemies for us. The scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. 
if you're here and you're wrestling with, is God, is there any way God loves me in my selfishness? He died for you. For you. No one knows you more than God knows you. He knows everything about you, but he loves you. No one loves you more than he loves you. He left angels gathered around the throne and worshiped him, and he left that to come be brutally mocked and humiliated. That's how much he loves you. He loves you. He loves you, and he was crucified to forgive you from of your selfishness, but he also was crucified to free you and rescue you from living for yourself. You don't have to live for yourself anymore because living for yourself is always empty. You can live for him. He died to free you from living for yourself. You can live for him. Do you want your life to be centered around you? Everything I do, I do for me. Everything I did, I did for me. It made me feel alive. Is that how you want to live? Or do you want to live a life where Christ, the one who came here to rescue you, he's your center? How are you going to set up your life? If I live For me, I'm really settling. I'm settling because he is so much greater and so much better. Life is always better when he's at the center. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you were condemned so we would not have to be, that you were forsaken so we would not be, that you were rejected so we would be accepted. that you were crucified so we may be forgiven. Jesus, turn our hearts towards you and our affections towards you. We want you to be the center, the center of our lives. We, We don't wanna be on the throne of our lives. Jesus, we want you on the throne. Lord, we wanna take ourselves off. Please help us take ourselves off so you will be in the rightful place at the center of our lives. That's in your name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing and thank him that he was made a public spectacle of, which ultimately made a public spectacle of sin and death because his death brings our forgiveness. So we sing to him, responding to his loving kindness towards us. Say
Amazing love. Let's sing together. Amazing love. because he already loves us. His love is fixed. His love is secure. Next week, we're going to wrap up this series, Love Stories, and we're going to look at this scandalous story in the Bible 
the story of Hosea and Gomer, which is really not a story about a human relationship. It's a picture of how deep and wide and relentless and pursuing the love of God is. And so it will be a great week next week for you to bring someone with you who you feel needs to understand how amazing his love is. That's going to be next week. I'm excited about teaching that message. And I want to encourage you, if you have not yet tried our Saturday night, we, we moved a bunch of people from here to Saturday night. We've been having now, like, almost, Saturday night's almost as big as Sunday morning now. It's awesome. And last Saturday night, or last night, we had Darius at a CD release party, which was amazing. So you can get, can you get your CD in the bookstore? You get Darius's CD in the bookstore. I got my signed copy. Boom. You'll want to get one. And so we love Darius, and last night was amazing. We had a great time. And this next Saturday night, we're going to have our regular service, and after, we're going to have a, we're going to have a dude's night. Wow, I'm so glad you dudes are excited about that. We're going to have a dude's <laughs> night. And there's more information in your bulletin. It's going, to be, it's going to be an incredible night. So I invite you to come next Saturday at 5 o'clock. If you're here and you want someone to pray with you about anything going on in your life, to my left, your right, right over the, by those lights, our prayer team is there. They would love to pray with you. We also have elder prayer for those of you who want someone to pray with you for healing, whether that's physical healing or emotional healing. To get to the elder prayer room, you simply go through the doors in the back, take a right, our elder prayer room is there. Let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing as we go. Jesus, these are your sons and daughters. Your love for them is fixed. I pray this week that they would sense just how far and wide and deep your love is. I pray this week when they wrestle with how they measure up, that you would remind them they're already accepted and already approved. I pray this week when they wrestle with a decision at work or in life, that you would remind them that your love for them is fixed, that they are secure because of your love. I pray that they would walk in the freedom and the joy of your forgiveness this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace and have a great week.